language is alive when there are kids using it at play. The elders live for the good of the young. Welcome to El Ponte, the Ladino podcast about bridging cultures and cultivating connections. In today's episode, we will be speaking with Isaac Daniel. We had a wonderful conversation, which was very lengthy and robust. For time and clarity's sake, we have edited the interview for your listening pleasure. This is our first interview for El Ponte, so we're super excited to share, and we hope that you enjoy Max, will you give a little introduction to the wonderful Isaac Daniel, please? Yes. So I don't want to spoil too much of the interview that we had with him, but I'll begin by saying, uh, aside from being our first guest on the podcast, the interview is very special because Isaac Daniel is my father. He was born in Salonika, which today is called Thessaloniki in Greece, in 1933. And so Salonika is a really famous city. Um, in, for Sephardic Jews called Madre de Israel, or like the mother city of, uh, of Israel, of Jews. And as an Ottoman city, it was formerly part of the Ottoman Empire. It was a multi-religious, multi-ethnic city home to many kinds of people, Muslims and Jews and Armenian Christians and Greek Christians and, and Protestants and Western Europeans. It was a real, real metropolis. And at the turn of the 20th century, it was home to probably the world's largest Ladino-speaking community. I mean, almost half of the city were, were Ladino-speaking Jews at one point. Um, and so it was kind of like the center. Um, but he, he was born there, but he grew up in a small town nearby called Veria, uh, which, like Salonika, had been home to Jews uh, for nearly 2,000 years and for 500 years to Sephardic Ladino-speaking Jews. So he'll talk a bunch about his time growing up and what it was like being a native Ladino speaker in a community that, you know, was really exclusively Ladino speaking, and as well as the impact of World War II and the Holocaust on himself, on his family, and also uh, the Ladino language and, and Sephardic culture in general. And, of course, to balance out, you know, that very serious and somber story, We'll also get to hear some of his Joha stories in Ladino and English translation, as well as some uh, some beautiful music sung sung by him. Um, yeah, so we're very excited to share our first interview with you, and yeah, we hope you enjoy. My name is Isaac Daniel. I was born in Salonika or Thessaloniki, Greece, before the war. At a very early age, we moved with my with a family to a smaller town nearby, which was my father's hometown. Salonika was my mother's hometown. So, so I grew I, I was born in Salonika, but I grew up in Beria. Beria is an ancient Jewish community that goes back 2,000 years at least. And, uh, and had community about a few hundred Jews, maybe at some point at the peak was 800 some, 850. That's about it. And this community, was very close-knit in a small town, and they only spoke Ladino among themselves. So I- Did you speak Greek as well, or just Ladino? 
That's Ladino. Now, that, I didn't know any other language. That's all. I spoke Ladino to my family. I spoke Ladino to my to my uh, friends. So whenever I, a little kid, I want to play, I would walk from my house, which was a little outside the, uh, the wall ghetto. There was a no wall ghetto, and I played with the other kids in the Malays. We called it. That's how. That's how was our life. We spoke only Ladino, and I didn't know any Greek. Yeah. So until you know, until I went to school. But uh, anyway, so that was the the, the the situation. We all spoke Ladino. Were you able to communicate with um, people who are not of Sephardic descent in the re- in the regions around? There were no such people. Oh. <laughs> uh, everybody, everybody spoke Ladino. Okay. Yeah. The Jewish community. Yeah. I mean, they were, you know, with the Greeks, the Gentile Greeks, and we didn't have much contact with them. Only the adults had some contact through business, but kids completely, completely separated. Wow. The communities of the, the Jews, the Greek Christians, and there was another community called the Valachians. Valachians were sort of Romanians. They spoke a quasi-Romanian dialect, Valachian. They were Christians, but they were different. Anyway, they had their own community. Okay, so we're totally segregated. Yeah, and did you take classes in Ladino? Was it taught in the schools? No, I didn't take any classes at all. It was all, you know, homegrown. You know, now in Salonika, in the big community, they had in the Jewish schools they they taught Ladino. So. My brother Aaron, my older brother Aaron, which was starting kindergarten Salonika in Jewish kindergarten, they started teaching them Ladino, how to write uh, Greek and, and Hebrew. All together at, at, the, at the kindergarten age. I would have friends in the Malay, in the big ghetto where we played. We played all kinds of games, you know. We played um, cacharetas. Cacharetas is something. It's like uh, the knuckle bone of a, of a lamb. Mm. And uh, I know you can imagine the shape. You flip it and it can fall on four different sides. And that's uh, like a dice. You can leave a dice. Yeah. And then also we played, I mean, marbles, marbles, right? Marbles. Marbles. But we didn't pay money for marbles. We made our own marbles. We took clay, we put it on our hands, we rolled it into a nice little sphere. And then we cooked it in the oven to harden and became marbles. Wow. <laughs> we made our own marbles. We made most of our games ourselves. We made it. We improvised it. So, and then, and so, you know. Amongst all of your friends, you were always speaking in Ladino. And only Ladino. That's the only language I knew, Ladino. Did you know how to also write in Ladino? Or only was I didn't know how to write that. No, I didn't write that. I hadn't gone to school yet. That makes sense. Uh, so, and then uh, when I finished age six, it was time to go to school. Now, it was a law in the country. Whenever there was a Jewish community, by law, the Jews had to have their own segregated schools. What they had. We were going to segregated schools. Now, the segregated schools were like public schools in part, uh, but they didn't teach religion. There was, you know, they, Regular public schools, the Christian, Christian religion together. The, the Jewish schools were separate 
they follow the public curriculum, but they did not follow any Christian thing. In fact, we had separate textbooks, uh, which were issued textbooks for public Jewish schools. And instead of Christmas, they would say Hanukkah, and they would say uh, um, first of the year, Rosh Hashanah. We, they taught us what the Greek names would be. And Yom Kippur, Greek name was Exilasmos. Uh, uh, and then uh, uh, Sukkot, the Greek name was Sinopia. Yeah, yeah, like this. So yeah. we, we learn all these things. And first time I went to school when I was, I, I just finished age six or something, it was the Jewish school of Beria. It was, since the community was so small, the Jewish school, it was a little building. It was like a three room building with a small empty room. Uh, and a yard. So by law, at the time, at the time when I started school, the country was governed by semi-dictator who had abolished the uh, parliament. It was called Ioannis Metaxas. Through a coup, uh, oh, 4th of August of 36, it was his anniversary of taking over. He, he left the king in place, but he was running the country, Ioannis Metaxas. He was sort of a rightist, fascist-leaning person, but he respected the Jews and he, he, he helped the Jews conduct a completely segregated life, education. So, but so when I went to this school, we had two Greek teachers and two Jewish teachers. The Jewish teacher was supposed to teach us the Jewish stuff, and that was up to us to, to finance them. The, the government, the public would pay for the Greek teachers, which taught the regular curriculum, the, the non-religious curriculum. They taught, they taught us, they were supposed to teach us Greek, history, geography, arithmetic, and everything. So when I went there to first grade, I, I was totally at a loss. When a Greek teacher came to class and started talking, I couldn't understand anything she was saying. Some of the Jewish students, my classmates, were somewhat more advanced because their parents had anticipated that and had gotten them some um, tutoring uh, classes before something, uh, some temporary uh, uh, kindergarten thing. So they had some uh, little advantage. I had no advantage. They didn't, I didn't know anything what she was talking about. And the teacher found out and she was screaming. She says, how can they raise children in this country without knowing the language? You know, she was so, anyway. And I remember one incident when she assigned uh, arithmetic. So you can know how to count. And uh, the way to, to, to learn how to count at our, at our age, six or seven, is take a, a box and fill with beans and then add the beans, you know, how many three and four beans, you know, et cetera. And she says, and bring a cuti of spirta with fasolia. Bring a box of uh, matches. The matches came in a little tiny box, you know, yeah, they were just sticks. And uh, it says spirta. And I went home to my parents and I says, the teacher says, to, I say in Ladino, to bring a box of uh, alcohol. I says, what? <laughs> I, Spirit, I didn't know the word spirit in Greek means matches. 
I was thinking of the Ladino was sprito, which means alcohol. Sprito. <laughs> sprito. Says, and my friend says, no, no, you don't mean that. Yes, yes, that's what she said. Sprito. <laughs> uh, and I insisted. My parents didn't believe me. They gave me a nice little box of uh, matches filled with beans. And I went to school, very doubtful whether I was being the right thing. And it was right. They were right. Did they, did they speak Greek, your parents? Well, my parents knew how to handle Greek because okay. they were adults. They had to, to talk to some neighbor or something. And my father had to talk to somebody in the markets. No, they, they couldn't communicate in Greek. Yeah. Very well. You know, my mother had an accent. Because, okay. Well, I'll tell you about my mother, about languages. My mother was born in Turkey. She was raised in Greece. But as an Italian citizen, she went to an Italian school where she learned French. But at home, she spoke Ladino because she was Jewish. Well, was her family of Italian descent is how she ended up? There were Italian citizens. There were some Jews, very few, who were Italian citizens. She spoke many languages, right? So she spoke Greek. Uh, yeah, Greek with an accent. Yeah. And uh, French and Italian. And Ladino, obviously. Ladino, of course, yes. That's... Did she know Turkish at all? No, no. My grandma didn't know any Turkish. No, she was sitting at home, born in Turkey, raised there, didn't know any Turkish. I mean, it was possible. The Jews were so isolated, they didn't even bother to learn. Grandpa knew Turkish. He went even to a little Turkish school, but that's about it. So, but uh, the only Turkish I know is how to swear. <laughs> the importance, yeah. the important That's part. Of very, very expressive uh, language. Anyway, they introduced a Greek um, textbook. You know how to read. As soon as I learned how to read, I didn't wait for the uh, daily page uh, assignment. <laughs> a book right away. As soon as I learned how to read, and then, and the teacher was so amazed, amazed. By the end of the year, I said, well, if I can get it seven out of 10, I'll be satisfied. I got the grades for the first grade. I got 10 out of 10. Wow. <laughs> number one. I knew better Greek than anybody. So anyway, I could yeah. recite, I could do anything. But, but I didn't get to finish the grammar school, the fourth grade, because the war came. I was nine years old at the peak of the war, nine years old. So were you still, were you allowed to stay at, in your home at this time? We were up to a point. So anyway, then one day we heard, oh, you know, they're going to transport the Jews, all the Jews to Poland. Oh, really? People didn't know. It was, communication was terrible. It's just, what's in Poland? Well, you're going to join other Jews in Krakow. They're going to welcome you. They're going to resettle you. And we're going to make a Jewish country there. And people say, well, it's okay. Maybe it's the Messiah is coming. So blah, blah, blah. And then uh, people start saying, well, in Poland, maybe we need heavy clothes because it's a little colder. And the boys, instead of wearing short pants, are wearing longer pants um, and everything. 
and then start discussing. And then people didn't know. One 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 guy was saying, "Well, when I go to Poland, I'll open my tailor shop because I'm a good tailor. I I've been good customers there." Yeah, the guy says, "I happen to have a toothache, but I hope when we get to Poland, I'll find a good dentist there." And then everybody was talking about plans, what we do when we go to Poland, Krakow. It was a little old lady, senile old lady, who was saying in Ladino, Mos van a matar a todos. Mm -hmm. They're going to kill us all. And people say, shush, old lady, you don't know what you're talking about. Why would it kill us? Why? Did we commit any crime? No. So anyway, so, so we're still talking Ladino. And then my younger brother was born in 1941. He was barely two years old then, in the middle of the war. And he was just learned how to speak. Two years old, he started talking. And the only language he could speak was Ladino. So then, uh, and then the, we heard that we started deporting Jews from Salonika by trains. They were sending them. Actually, the trains were leaving Salonika starting in 43, or they also introduced the yellow star. We have the yellow star. I remember I had a classmate in the Jewish school. Her name was Lina Kamhi. She had a little younger sister, which was six years old, five, something like that. Everybody in the family was wearing the yellow star. The little girl was not required to, kids under six were not required to wear a yellow star. But she was crying. She wanted a yellow star for herself too. She cried and cried and cried when her mother took a, a piece of silk, yellow silk, and fashioned a yellow star for her. I was I went to play in the ghetto, and the little girl was screaming, and you know, and then I passed uh, by the ghetto uh, a couple of hours later, a little girl with bloodshot eyes was sitting on the front stoop of the of their house, and she was smiling because she was wearing this, uh, the star that her mother had fashioned out of the yellow silk. Wow. So anyway, uh, and uh, Lina Kamhi, her sister, my classmate, was my first love. <laughs> really, you know, she was a nice girl, she has a nice black hair, say hair. she has a nice complexion, and she had a beautiful voice. So anyway, it was, the last day of Passover, we had heard of people being deported, but they said, well, they were not going to come to that yellow town. Why would they bother with a few hundred Jews? It was the last day of Passover. I was in the synagogue with my father. My older brother Aaron didn't feel like coming. So I went to the synagogue, and all of a sudden, poli Greek policeman and a Jewish collaborator and facilitator came to the door, they blocked the front door of the synagogue. And my father says, let's get out of here. And my uncle, uh, some people had already sent some of their families to the mountains because they didn't know what to expect. So uh, my uncle Joseph with 10 children, he has sent his nine members of the family, he said, only around to watch the house. But he, my father says, get out of here because you know, have no reason to stay here. So my father, and my, my uncle ran through the, a side door to the women's section in the separate, separate entrance, but the police wasn't watching. So, and I had, was left behind until my mother came 
and he grabbed me and pushed the guards aside. The policeman took me out. So we all ran um, to a home and we hid in the basement. And that's where we lived for a little while, like Anne Frank. And then they deported the other people in the ghetto, all 860. And you know, they deported one day. You know, what, what, within a week, after a week later, the whole community had disappeared through the ovens of Auschwitz. Within a week. Wow. Community with a history of 2,000 years disappeared, except for a few who had gone to the mountains, including my uncle, two my uncles and everything. Were you still in the basement at this time? In the basement. How long were you in the basement for? Well, I thought it was a long time, but it turns out to be just a couple of weeks. Okay. Because, and we had a Greek friend, a Christian friend, friend of my father's, who used to shop for us and bring us food and pretend to be living in their basement. But at night he would leave, he would to his home. And then some of the new neighbors told, told the police and the Greek police came and says, we have to, because we're gonna be in trouble with the Germans, blah, 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 we have to take you in. But the thing is, anybody that was caught hiding, they wouldn't bother to do anything with them, they would just shoot them on the spot. They would shoot the whole family. But what happened is, there was uh, a law that Italian Jews were exempted. But in our case, it didn't matter because my mother married a Greek uh, citizen, so she her citizenship didn't count. So they arrested us, but and they took us to the German commander, interrogation and everything. So anyway, but that, and and my mother knew this little German told the German commander that uh, my father was Italian, Italian citizen. And they said the Germans said, okay, yeah. They decided on the spot not to shoot us on the spot, says, but we had to investigate that further. Anyway, but eventually they took us to the transit camp in Salonika, right next to a railroad station, waiting for the next train to Auschwitz, train number 18. And then while there, before there, my mother would send telegrams to Athens, to a good, uh, Italian council and everything. And the Italian council sent to the uh, Italian ambassador in Athens, then ambassador sent to the foreign ministry in Italy, Galeazzo Ciano, who was Mussolini's son-in-law, who passed it on to his deputy, Giuseppe Bastianini. Rev. Bastianini, look at this petition, whatsoever. what do we do with with Jews where the mother or the wife used to be Italian citizen. And finally it took two weeks and then he sent the letter. He says, well, you are asking me whether we can consider these Jews Italian citizens. He says, absolutely not. That was the first paragraph of the, of the letter. Second paragraph says, however, there was a second paragraph. However, we need to investigate this further until we found out what to do, take these Jews out of the transit camp, don't send them to Auschwitz, take them out and then move them to the Italian zone of occupation, meaning Athens, until we find out what to, what to do with them. And that was our savior. Wow. We were saved. And I, anyway, so we're going back to Ladino. So right away, 
we went to Athens and we stopped talking Ladino, stopped forcing ourselves to talk Greek. Now, my little brother, Sammy, was now, let me see, he was still two years, two years old, two, two son, yeah. And he only knew how to speak Ladino. And we tried to tell him, look, Sameko, don't say Ladino. He said, don't say Papa or Daddy, say Baba, like the Greek. And he was laughing. Baba in Latino means duck. <laughs> Baba, Rayena, how should I call him chicken or roaster, whatever it is. Your <laughs> duck. He thought it was funny. And then he says he wanted uva, mm-hmm. grapes. Don't say uva, say staphylia. He was very upset that we're trying to stop him. He was just barely starting to speak, two, two or two and a half. And then trying to switch into Greek. You know? And then, well, I don't want to divert this into a story of my story. That's in my book. But talking Latino, we stopped talking Latino altogether. Mm, yeah. And you had false identities. Oh, we, we got uh, also, you know, false baptismal certificates and IDs. And we changed our names. And then we started with Underrun. Yeah, it was okay. Well, while we were in the Italian control in Athens, when the Jews were not molested at all, until September 8th, when Italy finally surrendered to the Allies and gave up. So, so the Germans came down to Athens and let us finish the job now that the Italians didn't let us finish. So no matter what citizenship you had, it didn't matter. We started chasing, arresting all the Jews possible. So we had our names changed, we changed, we went here, we went from to another an apartment, we moved to a mountain uh, resort, resort in, you know, you know, it's, uh, details are like that. We stopped talking Ladino altogether. You know, you, what about what about at home in private with each other, did you, or are you still? We started forcing ourselves to talk Greek. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only problem is, my mother still had an accent when she spoke Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it was like a foreigner, you know. Did she pass? Did she say that she was Italian when asked? Was her identity? Uh, well, she- I don't know. She probably, I don't know, she was studied different. Uh, she was French, whatever she looked like. My father had a different accent, but it was more like Turkish accent. Mm-hmm. He said he was a Greek refugee from Turkey. Yeah, so he was okay, he was accepted. And your mother pretended to be hard of hearing? What? Oh, oh. Or mute or something? Yeah, oh, well, well, my mother was pretending, uh, uh, grandma pretended hard of hearing because she, she couldn't commu- uh, converse, converse in Greek very well. She couldn't pretend hard of hearing. Her name was uh, uh, Marina, Marina, Marina. Uh, grandpa's name was uh, Michael, actually, yeah. Michael. My name was Fortis. Yeah. They're, they're fake names. Their real name, your, yeah. your mother's real name is Bella. Bella, yes. And your father's name, my grandfather's name is Mordechai. Mordechai became Michael. Yeah, yeah. Mikhail. Michalis. Yeah. So we went, we were talking all Greek, forcing out even among ourselves. So Samiko, my baby brother, picked up Greek when you know, he was, was able to switch to Greek. And then, uh, but then we were also hiding together with uh, my uncle, 
we ran to another uncle, which was, uh, well, my mother's sister had escaped from Salonika and with her husband and Joseph, uh, Joseph Confortes. So, but he talked with a really Ladino accent. The Jews of Salonika, even when they talk Greek, you could tell they had a sing-song accent. Ah, 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 ah. So you could tell, you know, he was, you know, he had the Ladino accent, you know, even when he spoke Greek. Well, we finally came back, we're liberated. I was, I'm jumping all these years. Uh, and we came back to our hometown in Beria. And it was April 1, 1945. I remember the first day we came back to our house. And we couldn't get into our house, occupied by strangers who were saying, they should have made soap out of you too. That was the thing. That's what, in many cases, they resented Jews coming back to their own houses. They were like, the strange new occupants were very, uh, you know. So anyway, and the notion was that all the Jews had been turned into soap. And it was, anyway. So, and then I went to school. Uh, tried to where, what grade you, uh, grammar school? Yeah, I had finished. I didn't. I didn't finish even fourth grade. You know, in the Jewish school. So I went to. Uh, I knew a little Greek, so I went to the, the fifth grade of this public school, public school number four in Beria. Was uh, was this school segregated as well, or was this? No, no, after the war, there were no Jews to segregate anymore. It was a General public school, mostly mostly Christians, yeah. Is that because the Jewish community was wiped out, or wiped out of the eight hundred sixty Jews from Beria that were deported, not a single one came back. Not a, the only ones who survived were people who had run to the mountains before that. And your family, it sounds like. Yeah, uh, the the people who managed to survive by uh, by moving to the mountains were one hundred and thirty one people. From uh, 850, uh, disappeared, including altogether, I count my relatives from Veriam, so I came from Island of Rhodes, about 95 relatives of ours perished. Everything from children, uh, old people, young people, everything. So anyway, didn't survive that. that. So uh, finally, I, I was afraid how I was gonna be received by my new classmates and then then the teacher asked people to call attendance and and they say everybody was supposed to stand up and say their name so i stood up and all of a sudden i hesitated what name should i give uh should i say fortis Mikhailidis? and for the first time i felt safe i said isaac daniel my first time i, I used my my real name. So I stood up and then, so surprisingly, most of the classmates were friendly. Well, just, exactly, I had a few incidents, uh, but, you know, but later I'm sure all of them became my friends. And then I finished the fifth grade and then started writing in Greek composition. And then I started writing poetry. I wrote poetry. And one of the poems is in my book. It's in Greek, I don't know. And it's called The Storm. 
And it's allegorical thing. It talks about the, the war and the liberation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I wrote it in Greek in the translation too. So anyway. Uh, and were you were you back to speaking Ladino with your parents? Oh, well, we we it wasn't easy. Going back only uh grandpa and grandma uh, once in a while they would talk to each other in Ladino. But we kids talk to them in Greek. We're already used to Greek. Yeah, and they talk to them in Greek and they just struggle to respond. So it was a first language. There was uh, a scholarship available, a fellowship for the number one student in the county. And guess who was number one in the county? Yours truly. <laughs> so uh, the principal invited to his office. It was a new principal who came from Southern Greece who didn't know much about Jews, you know, didn't care. He says, well, you, uh, Mr. Daniel, uh, I know you are a good student, top student. You are well-behaved and everything. You have all the qualifications uh, for this uh, fellowship except you don't meet all the requirements. He says, what do I miss? Well, one of the requirements is the student has to be a good student and this and has to be a proper ethical religious upbringing. So don't I have that? No, you don't understand. Yeah, I do understand, I said. You are thinking of Middle Ages. Yeah, yeah. And he was upset that I, I reacted and he pushed me out of his door. And then I wrote to the American Jewish Committee. The American Jewish Committee went and talked to the Greek organization. I was co-sponsoring this fellowship, and they came up with this sort of stupid gimmick. Says they gave it to number two student. So because number two student, because his family comes from this particular part of Turkey, therefore donations saved for that. They didn't say anything like that anyway. So, but I went to the Jewish community of Salonika. I complained, they said, don't worry, we'll support you. When were you going to go? Uh, I visited Mr. Joseph Nehama, Nehama, one of the survivors. Joseph Nehama, the famous author of the Ladino French Dictionary. Mm. The best dictionary there is, have you heard of Nehama's Dictionary? Well, anyway, I visited his office. He was part of a, a bank, a bank, uh, bank union. And Mr. Nehama, he says, yeah, okay, don't worry, we'll support you. He says, and the president of the community was there, yeah, Yoshua Perahia. He says, don't worry, we'll support you. So, and I started the university in Athens. I was doing very well. And then in the meantime, we started trying to plan to come to the United States. You know, yeah, it was, the Greek quarter was 300 Greeks a year, but uh, they had a special thing. Uh, Congressman Seller, Emmanuel Seller of New York, had a modification for refugees from people who had been persecuted during the war. They were an extra few extra. So eventually, towards the end of 1954, our turn came, we were approved, and that, that's it. And then we're still speaking Greek to each other because we're used to that. Yeah. Then, uh, 
we came to a, a boat from Italy, you know, and they bought all the all the crew members were Puerto Rican. It was American ship called the Independence, Puerto Rican. Well, lo and behold, we could communicate with them. <laughs> was that the first time you spoke Spanish or Ladino with somebody else? Uh, well, with this uh, grandpa and grandma, we, we, sometimes we spoke with each other a little bit, but yeah. then slowly we start switching now. Now we're not obligated anymore. We start turn turn to Ladino. So we came to this country and we switched to Ladino until we started learning English and we started speaking English. But to grandma and grandma, I spoke Ladino all the time until they, until they, for the whole their, their lives. That's the only language I spoke with them. Do you feel that Ladino was um, like a language of home for you? Yeah, it was a home language. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So even in this country, after everything, we're learning English and everything. Among my siblings, I spoke English just a bit uh, used to that. But with my parents, even though they had learned some English, I spoke Latino till the very end. I mean, uh, till they passed away in 1993, I spoke Latino to them every minute. Were there other people either in the Sephardic community in Chicago where you ended up or that you communicated with in Ladino? Oh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. In the synagogue, there were many people, old timers from, uh, from Turkey and from uh, uh, Yugoslavia. They all spoke Latino, Ladino. And then with grandpa, we started reintroducing some of Ladino during the service. On Shana, and then there's a something after we finish the Amidah, there's something we sing, you know, Hebrew, you know, it's a thing. And one of the verses I sing in Ladino myself because Grandpa used to sing it. Yes. Alai, libros de vidas y muertos, the trees están abiertos, and las mercedes de los padres primeros, nos enfeuciamos, recibemos este filot como. Oh Lord, the sacrificio, acodra tus criados vidas, Adonai. And then talk about Ladino. I, after I finish tonight, I still haven't said, we said Havdalah tonight, Saturday, we Havdalah. We used to sing Havdalah in Ladino also. You want to hear it? Yeah, yeah. we'd love to. <laughs> okay. Can we, before, before you start, can you just really quickly explain what a Havdalah is for our listeners? Oh, Havdalah is uh, at the end of the Sabbath, which is Saturday today. To celebrate it on the Sabbath, Havdalah means the, the prayer ceremony, the candle, you say uh, the week, and now we start the, the, week, the weekday. Perfect. Yeah. Now, so anyway, we, we do it in Hebrew, but no. Merci mucho. Thank you. I can do it in Latino. It's in my book, too. Uh, I don't know if you want to hear the whole thing. Ya es bien abastado lo que habemos pasado. Mandamos a el untado, Mashiach de Israel, and translate this lesson. Mijael sa Israel, Eliab de Gabriel, mos vengan con el goel a salvar a Israel. This is the. Now, the, the thing is, yes, bien abastado, it is enough. Yes, bien abastado. Lo que habemos pasado, what we have endured. Mandamos a el untado, the anointed means tar, dip, yeah, you know, something. Mm-hmm. 
send them as the uh, anointed one, Mashiach, the Israel, Messiah of Israel. Messiah in Hebrew means anointed. And Ladino we say untado. We used to write Ladino in Hebrew characters. I have the same thing in Hebrew characters. And I tell you where I copy this from. Uh, when I was in the camp, in entrance and camp, waiting for the next train to Auschwitz, there was one day I saw a big pile about a mountain of books, Hebrew books, being burnt. They were burning in the middle of the street. I reached, I went nearby, I was, you know, I reached and picked up a little booklet, a little prayer book. I still have a little prayer book. I still have it, which I raised from the fire. And on the inside cover of the prayer book, it belonged to a little girl, student, and her name, I can still read it, was Leah Shibi. When I went to Mexico with my brother Aaron, first time, many, many years ago, we started moving around. We're talking our Spanish, you know, and we're getting along fine. And then I went to a department store and I went to buy something like this, some crystal. And we started saying something. And all of a sudden, the sales lady apologized to us. She said, look, I'm not very educated. I know, don't know all, all the Spanish very well like you do. <laughs> she apologized to us. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. So anyway, and so that's whatever. You know, we, we managed very well in Mexico. No problem at all. Just make the proper adjustments. That's it. Once in a while, we threw some of Ladino, which is actually not all Ladino, pure Spanish. Some is Portuguese, some is Turkish. So uh, it says, did they bring you uh, 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 water yet? And we said, not ainda. Oh, are you Portuguese? Ainda is Portuguese. Todavia is Spanish. Mm -hmm. And we used Portuguese. We didn't know it was uh, Portuguese. Ainda, ainda, ainda. Anyway, we just had fun, you know. So I'd rather, you know, so with all Spanish-speaking people, I have no problem communicating. I can make small adjustments uh, and communicate perfectly. Now, the other day, last week or so, we had uh, people, workers, uh, cleaning our windows, you know, and then uh, I saw them talking Spanish, and I said, so I started talking to them, and he says, how do you know? You know, well, you know, siempre lo hablaba en casa, en la familia, lo hablaba con mis padres. Yo nací en Grecia, pero soy de origen español de 500 años antes. And he talks to the other one. He speaks perfect Spanish, he says. <laughs> so I can manage in Spanish, no problem. All the work is a come, you know, no problem at all. Yeah. And it's fun. <laughs> my parents didn't have any problem with communicating like that. So anyway. It really opened you up to be able to communicate with a lot of the world, regardless of where you are, which is wonderful. Uh, now, did, did Ladino help you with learning these other languages? Was it assistive because it's so many different languages? And, and... Well, 
we we were exposed to many languages to start with. Mm. In fact, people in Salonika, the more higher class people, started giving up Ladino. So it was a low class language. The, the really good language is French. Do you have other people now in in your world that you speak to in Ladino still? That's really, you know. And uh, those who, who think they speak Latino, they don't know it very well. They just mix it up with everything. You know. Yeah. So what's what's your what's your idea of Ladino? What's your model? Because I know I know you have strong opinions. <laughs> well, about the proper way to the proper way to write to write. Uh, oh, oh, uh, the, the spelling. Yeah. Oh, I I like my spelling. The spelling that is used currently, they call Ladino with a lot of K's. They don't use C's, you know. That's not standard Ladino. You know who invented that? A radio announcer from Israel, Moshe Shaul, who was from Izmir, Turkey. He was not a linguist or anything like that. He started writing the Ladino in Latinized characters, barring the Latinized Turkish uh, alphabet. You know, the Turkish changed from the Arabic thing to, to Latinized word. So he took Latinized Turkish to express Ladino, which is ridiculous because Ladino was not a unified language. It was every community had its own Ladino language character. Salonika was the center, but probably, in my opinion, the best <laughs> Ladino. But then, uh, Izmir, Turkish, Izmir and Istanbul had their own version. And then uh, uh, Yugoslavia, Sarajevo and uh, uh, Monastir had their own version. Yeah. So when people came to Chicago, for example, when all, all different people from different areas of the Sephardic community came together, was there a standardized Ladino or was there a standardized language that you were able to communicate no. uh, it? I think. The, only, the most Ladino that the people who really knew wrote it in Solitreo, which is Hebrew script. They didn't use Latin, Latin Latinized. But it, it was mutually intelligible. What? Like you could speak to somebody from Istanbul. Oh, yeah. Okay, communicate, no problem. Yeah. But uh, they use some expressions, which, for example, uh, for, uh, we used uh, Rosh Hashanah. We use uh, leek. How do they call leek in Turkey, the, the Jews? Yeah. They call it prasa, right? Mm -hmm. That's a Greek word. We use the Latino word, which was Spanish, called puerro, puerros. Yeah. And then called prasa. And what about, what about the word for earring? Oh, earring. In, in um, our community, we call it orejales. Um, oreja means ear. Mm -hmm. Orejales. Yeah. The Turkish Jews call it skularija. Skularija is a Greek word for earrings. So interesting. They use Greek. In Turkey, they use Greek. <laughs> Greece, we don't use Greek. <laughs> anyway, orijales. You know, there are many expressions. Another thing is, um, I, I, I follow this um, Latino community. It's full of this. They call it dingunos. Dinguno. What's dinguno? Like no one. No one. It's ninguno, from ni uno, 
Ni uno means not even, not one. No one. And we call it ninguno. But say ninguno, put a D in front. Why? No, no, no reason at all. Another thing is, oh, even the Hagara, you know, when we said, quien supiese entendiese, alabardo creense, we say, quien sabe uno. They say, cualo es uno, cualo es dos. Cualo, use a lot of words, cualo, cualo. Cualo means which, doesn't mean what. What in the Armageddon is que. Que is what. Cualo means which, but they, they don't make the difference. Do you, from your experience, does it, I guess in the, in the spelling is where the division comes from, but in the, in the communicating, you're able to, in the, I guess, verbal. Well, there's differences. Now, the Turkish Jews have their own name, some, it's not the Turkish, what happened is the biggest community that spoke Latino was Salonika. Unfortunately, it was exterminated in the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. so that went away. So the other community that was left was Izmir, which was untouched. And the guy from Izmir, Moshe Shaul, was in Israel. He had a radio program called Aki Yerushalayim. He would broadcast in Ladino every evening. And I was in Greece, and we used to turn the radio on and listen to Moshe Shaul, Aki Yerushalayim. He even had a booklet that had all the papers, and then they asked him to write it in Latin characters, and he picked this Latinized Turkish version. It says, says what is? You know how they, how they spell it, Kes? How do they spell it? With a K-E. K-E, no. We spell it Q-U-E. You spell it. You spell it. But, I spell it. Okay. But, but Moshe spelled it K-E, correct? Yeah, that's Moshe Shaul invented that thing. And that's that's kind of become the standard. The standard because the only people who survived mm -hmm. mostly uh, is is Mirlis, a standard. In fact, Moshe Shaul himself was says, "Well, I propose this simple thing," and surprisingly, nobody objected. That's what he said. Uh, I used to so prior prior to Moshe, it was. Q-U-E, so it was like standard Spanish almost. Well, not standard Spanish because basically Ladino is a Spanish language. So it, should, it doesn't apply. We don't do double L, for example. I would say Yamar, I would not put LL, you know, double L. That, we don't have it at all. That's, I would say Y-A-M-A-R, Yamar. And you don't use accents. We don't use accents. You don't have an enye. Huh? What? No enye. Enye? No, 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 no enye, whatsoever. Maybe when I say año, I would say A-N-I-O. I wouldn't, I would not put Y. I mean, this is mir, smir, smir, ladino. They invented the Y. You said Dio, God. They said D-Y-O. Where did they get the Y? I asked one guy, well, in the, if you did it in Hebrew, you use the word yud, letter yud, yud is a y. Some kind of nonsense. There's no reason for a y. It's funny because this podcast is really, the intent is really to show how this diasporic language has really 
you know, bridged cultures and created a sense of unification, but it, it sounds very much like there's a lot of divisiveness even within the community well, that speaks Ladino. Well, the best dictionary, as I said before, was Joseph Nehama. Yeah, and he was from Salonika, of course. Of course. <laughs> yeah, a hero of the war. When he passed away, the one I met, I had an interview with. By the way, the interview, I forgot to say, when I told him about uh, I needed to continue, needed some fellowship, he says, yeah, good, but I advise you, don't go to Athens. The best school in the world is Ecole Polytechnique in Paris. He was such a Francophile. Everything was French, French, French. Anyway, uh, what happened is he, he started writing the Latin dictionary himself using the spelling that I, I would use. Q-U-E, and then C, the letter C for sure. And then when he passed away, they found boxes and boxes of all his notes. And they gave them to some scholars from France and Spain, and they said, oh, this is the different uh, Spanish within. Well, they invented their own alphabet, which is neither the Turkish alphabet nor the Slavic uh, alphabet. And if you, and they, if you look at the dictionary, I have a copy of the original dictionary. The spellings are so ridiculous, doesn't make any sense, but that's, that's the way. It is. Anyway, so uh, Nehama, but still is the best dictionary there is. What do you see is the future for Ladino? Oh, future. I don't know. There is such a thing. Future, not a spoken language. Someplace I read and I quoted many times. A language is alive if there are children using it while playing at play. Mm. If there are no children using that language during play, that language is dead. What brings you um, excitement about the language? What what fills you with joy? It's my own language. It's the first language I spoke as a kid. You know, it's just, it's, Part of me. Yeah. Well, you clearly feel a, a deep sense of ownership. I, I own the language, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Really I'm also I'm also an amateur linguist. <laughs> and right now I I want purity of whatever language it is. You know, I can I can fake it in seven languages. <laughs> yeah. That's can, so impressive. Yeah. Do you have any Joha? Stories? Sure, sure, absolutely. The one I really like is, uh, the one in Latino, una vez era un día de verano, había mucha calor. Estaba caminando al parco, estaba sudando mucho, mucha calor. Dijo, Johato, para un banquito, me estiraré para echarme un poquito. Y topó un banquito, bench, Debajo de un árbol, a la solombra del árbol, y, y quiso sentar y estirar para dormir un poco. Aquel punto, otro un hombre se asenta a la a otra parte del banquito. Dice, ¿cómo que lo echan este? Le dice, le dice, no sé, ¿sabes, sabes que de, de nuevo? ¿Qué hay de nuevo? Están dando figos de baldes la, al charchí. Figos de baldes. Sí, 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 fui corriendo. Ahora se 
a Santa Joaquín, si quieres tirar para, para dormir, otro hombre se sienta a, a otra parte del banquito. Dice, luego echan este también, como eché el otro. Entonces, ¿sentís esas novedades? ¿Qué novedades? Están dando figos de baldes al Cherchi. Horrible. Ok. <risa> Fui corriendo. So, ahora quedó yo solo el banquito. Se estiró. Ahora puedo dormir. Bueno, yo, el banco entero. Después se puede dormir. Bueno, puede dormir. Está pensando. Dice, bueno. Bueno, dice. Se están dando figos de baldes. ¿Qué estoy yo aquí? <laughs> <laughs> ¿Qué me estaba, me estaba durmiendo aquí? <laughs> Would you mind, um, just for our listeners, do you mind translating that Joha story into English? Oh, of course. I, yeah, I, I tell it in English. I tell my students. That is hilarious. Yeah. I, I tell my students, especially when I discuss my theories of composite materials, And I said there are many professors who have their own theories and they all believe in their own lies. Mm. And this is believing your own lies. You tell a lie that they're giving away free things to the market and then you end up believing yourself. You're going to sleep. Hoja is the smart one. Johai was the naive one. Okay. But Hoja, one day was a hot day. He was walking in the park, sweating. He says, oh, let me find a nice bench so I can rest under the trees and shade take a nice nap. He finally found a nice bench in the shade of a tree. He says, I'll stretch down and take a nap. As soon as he tries to sit down and stretch, another man sits at the other end of the bench. So I have to get rid of him. You know, I need a whole bench to myself. He says, have you heard the news? The guy says, what news? They're giving away fresh figs in the market, free. Oh, really? He says, the guy gets up and runs away. Oh, so I got rid of him. She goes to sit down again. Another man sits there at the other end of the bench. So I have to get rid of him too. So same thing. Have you heard the news? She says, what news? They're giving away fresh figs in the market. Oh, really? He runs away. So Hoja now has his own bench all to himself. He stretches. I take a nice nap. So I take a nap. He can't sleep. He can't rest. What's the problem? He says, if they're giving away fresh figs in the market, what am I doing here? <laughs> This is believing your own lies. What would you like to see happen with Ladino, uh, realistically? Well, I don't what do I would like to see. I don't expect people to start picking it up and speaking. First of all, we don't even agree on a unified Ladino. You know, so... When people say qualo es es qualo, means which, and they use it for what, and that, and they spell the dio with a y, and they spell I don't know what. Yeah, that that bothers me. Yeah. yeah. So interesting. Okay, so would you be interested in a unified Ladino, or is I, it? I would be, but I cannot convince. For somebody who doesn't know anything about Ladino. What would you tell them about it in one or two sentences? It's, 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 it's a conglomeration of languages. Basically, it's medieval Spanish, mostly Catalan, mixed with some Portuguese, and then with a mixture of French, Italian, Greek, and Turkish, and Hebrew. Oh, Hebrew, there are many Hebrew things in Ladino. Uh, how do you say 
sad, sadness. Tristeza? No. That's it. The common Latino expression of sadness is sehora. Sehora? Sehora. And sad, sad person is sehorento. Sehorento. And sehora comes from the Hebrew. And the word sehora in Hebrew doesn't mean sad. It means merchandise. <laughs> the, my theory is the way it came about is they took the Greek word for sadness, which means tenahoria, and they took part of it, which happens to be a Hebrew word, doesn't mean anything about sadness. Means sehora. Sehora, all the letters of sehora are in the word tenahoria. Okay. So it's like a, a Hebrewification of a Greek word. Yeah, right. You know. There's a, a lot of Hebrew. I, the other day when the, the, the Ladineros, we say desgenado. What does desgenado mean? Desgenado? Desgenado. Desgenado. Got it. I, forgot. I have to see it in I context. Remember, yeah. huh? What is it? I have to see it in context. Desgenado means something sloppy. There's no, no, disorderly. Oh, yeah. Sloppy. Okay. And, uh, and there's a saying is, al desgenado le cae el bucado y dice que soy yo malo. Al desgenado is the sloppy man drops his foot from the mouth, from his sloppiness, and he says he attributes that to an evil eye. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. And that, that is when you try to do something with incomplete means, you know, try to, to patch something without not the right tools. Que manda mocos, babas a recibe. <laughs> if you sense that, you'll get drool. <laughs> Isaac, merci mucho. Merci mucho. Yeah. <laughs> de nada, de nada. Yeah. Es un placer. Un placer. What an amazing interview. Yeah, I have heard these stories so many times, and there's always a new detail or a little wrinkle that I haven't heard before. Um, and I'm really happy to share, that I get to share his story um, with the listening audience and, you know, with Ivy. And yeah, there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. Something that really interested me from the interview was the idea of a right or correct Ladino. So this led me to the really big question of, of language overall. So what is considered right and by whom? You know, it's the, the like you said, you said to me really beautifully, leads to the question of authenticity and authority. So I would love to kind of talk a little bit about that with you if, if that. Yeah. Um, from my knowledge of linguistics, I think there's one of the big kind of questions is a descriptivist or a prescriptivist approach. What does that mean? So prescriptivists means like it's a prescribed form of the language. Like this is how it should be. Mm. And there's a set form. Okay. So like a, like a standardized. Mm -hmm. okay. And descriptivist is more of, well, it's not our job to tell people what is right or wrong or how to speak or write in the language. We're just observers. We're describing what, you know, naturally how people speak and write. 
Um, I'm not a linguist, but that's th- my idea. I don't think you, you or I are either of those things because we're both engaged with the language, right? Would that is that fair to say? Like we're both observing it, but we're also experiencing it. I think with an endangered language, mm-hmm. there comes a lot of feelings of ownership or, or you know defending the language, mm-hmm. and you know it's very precious, it's very dear, and you want you know, your version to be the, the one that people learn. Right. Which um, your dad was very adamant about, yeah. I feel like. And he has his, you know, everybody has their reasons and like their legitimate reasons. Totally. And, you and know, it doesn't make, there's no there's no weight to that either. It's not good or bad. It just is. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot of his personal preference, but it often gets into the nitty gritty of orthography or, you know, what is orthography? It's like how a language is written. Mm, the spelling, um, right? Yes. Cool. So, I mean, for example, one of the main, you know, tensions is like this very little issue that for some people is a very big issue about uh, how to spell ke. Mm-hmm. Very basic word meaning what mm-hmm. in, in Ladino. And so the issue is do you spell it Q-U-E or K-E? Mm. So... You know, if you want to have a bunch of Ladino speakers, you know, get into a fight, you can you can throw that into the mix and, and see what happens. Um, but that's not the point of our no. podcast. And I think what's more interesting is, you know, the, f- the feelings and the passions that people bring mm-hmm. to that conversation. Not really – I don't really care that much how it's spelled. But I think the motivations and the feelings are more interesting. Absolutely. And that, that also leads to the question of, you know, does a native speaker know more than a scholar, for example? Like your dad talked a lot about um, a radio host who I had looked up and, you know, he was a professor and very scholarly. You know, he's 92. He wasn't also a native speaker, but he he taught Ladino. And so he was both a scholar and a native speaker. And, and how do you reconcile both of those things? with a language that is so near and dear to so many people, but also endangered and and on the verge of extinction, so precious in a way that there's maybe not as much room for flexibility as with a modern, constantly evolving language. Is that fair to say? Yeah. And I think Ladino's in such a unique circumstance because there's no... There's been attempts to create like a single linguistic authority. Mm-hmm. And I guess the main counterexample is French. You know, in, in France, there's the government puts a lot of investment into the, you know, the academy of the French language. And, you know, they have a whole process of how they make all their rules. Um, and Yiddish kind of has that. There's the YIVA organization um, but Lidio has a couple organizations in Israel and, you know, it's part of – there's a department in Spain. But it doesn't have the same weight right. as those. So it's kind of a free-for-all in terms of what authority. Um, it's a little bit anarchic. Which is kind of amazing yeah. because it, it it's, it's like an opportunity language. There's so much opportunity for – it's 
you know, it's like an, an adventure. Yeah. And, hey, as long as people are fighting over it, people still care. That's So that's, that's like, where I settle. True. Yeah. You know, it's, like, people are passionate. Good. That's true. We don't want people to be complacent. That's – I like that. That's a, <laughs> I love that lens. <laughs> you know, going off of the idea of, of lenses from a personal lens, it was super interesting for me to speak with Isaac because – I had this really clear-cut kind of preconceived idea of Ladino as a language that connected people, you know, diasporic or otherwise. And this interview made me aware of the aspect in which this language, like any other, is is prone to a hierarchical structure um, or like we just talked about, feelings of ownership or, you know, preservation that inevitably excludes some. So, again, not in a negative way, just in an observational eye-opening way. It was interesting to hear from one side your your dad talking about, you know, immigrating to the U.S. and being on this boat and meeting a bunch of people from Puerto Rico and, and having that communicative bridge with these these people from a different place with him because of, of the foundation of the language of, of Ladino. And so he was able to speak in Ladino, you know, do Spanish with them and they could understand each other, which was beautiful. And then also coming back to Chicago and being able to communicate with people who weren't necessarily from Vadia or, you know, but they were from Ladino-speaking communities, which was amazing. But then also being, he was very clear on orthography, you know, yeah. this, this spelling of mu- mucho versus mucho or um, the que or the que, mm-hmm. different, you know, different things that uh, it, when you're hearing a language, you may not pick up on the nuance, but in writing or in, in spelling of it, it becomes very clear and, and there is a sense of exclusivity or, oh, you're from a that place or yeah. I am from this place and we are different. But meanwhile, it's like you're all yeah. connected through this language. That was an, an eye-opening experience for me to like, you know, get off my little clouds of butterflies and 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 tulips and kind of see that like oh this is a language that is there is a lot of passion around it and there is a lot of divisiveness and hierarchy in in some ways as well that is good to acknowledge and and recognize as as a as a as a topic of tension maybe Mm -hmm. so that you know it's so that we know how to move forward in bridging cultures. Yeah, and I think for languages like Ladino, they're often private languages or mm-hmm. family languages. Totally. Especially for the generations older than us. They grew up hearing their parents speak Ladino as kind of a secret language. Yeah. Um, and so it was kind of an exclusive language. Totally. But on the other side, it's, you know, a protective language. It is something secure and that you own and, you know, it's a place where you feel comfortable and that you know that other people may not understand you, which for a lot of people that they feel very safe. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are stories from the 1920s of these Ladino speakers on the subway in New York City and they're gossiping and kind of telling lascivious details about their life in Ladino. And then, you know, somebody, a Puerto Rican from uh, from East Harlem is kind of shocked, and the and the Ladino speakers are surprised that somebody understands them. Um, so there, there, that little story 
kind of the the glass shatters around the idea of Ladino as this private um, right. language that nobody else understands. Right. Um, yeah, and there and there are other stories about immigrants to the U.S. or also to Latin America, and when they hear Spanish being spoken, they assume that person is Jewish. Because they've only ever known Spanish as a Jewish language. Which is so funny coming from the U.S. and, like, you know, Mm -hmm. Western lens. And and, and it's very, like, Ashkenormative in this country from my experience. So it's funny to hear that. Yeah. And I love love how that anecdote, like, flips expectations on its head. Totally. This person's coming from a different perspective and different, really different uh, part of the world where, you know— Things that we associations we take for granted are not the same. Um, so I love that kind of little instructive bit. Yeah, that's amazing. Also, I loved too your your the reason even that we chose we chose the refrán the los viejos para bien de los mancebos is specifically because it is your dad talks so much about how to keep a language alive and 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 what a living language looks like and it's when you hear kids playing in the language is when you know the language is alive. The, the, just the aspect of exile and return, that they left, they had to leave, they survived, they escaped Auschwitz, which was in nuts, but then they returned to Varia, where they had originated from, was so wild to me, and that they tried to go back to their house, and there were people living there. That's very common. Yeah, just the idea of like war and, and exile. Yeah, you're you're a stranger in your own land, in yeah. your own home. But yeah, so so then he moves to the U.S. to Chicago, and they speak. They go back to speaking Ladino, but only yes. with his parents. And then he he said that he spoke English with his siblings, yeah. right? So that was really fascinating yeah. to me. I mean, it was a way to learn the language and get used to speaking in it. Mm. Um, and as you can tell, I mean, besides from the accent, you know, his English is excellent yeah, for the most part. Yeah. Not for the most part. It is excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, so I think, you know, Greece is a very overwhelmingly, you know, Greek Orthodox country. And I think there's a lot of pressure um, then to speak Greek and, you know, there's a, it's a pretty relatively monocultural place. And I think it's interesting that in the U.S. they felt more comfortable. It was safer mm-hmm. to speak Ladino um, because it wasn't associated with being Jewish. And that was, you know, kind of even after the war, it was kind of scary to be openly Jewish in Europe. I mean, the, you know, it didn't end. Anti-Semitism didn't end with the end of the war. If only. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, so it kind of went underground and then reemerged. Um, exile and return, yeah. as you were saying. Exile and return. It's wild. It, it, I don't know. That really, that really s- struck me. Um, yeah. And even the question of, like, why would you return to a place that doesn't want you, which is a kind of, an, I think, is where my immediate, like, how, how, how could you go back there? But then it's like, oh, well, that, I mean— Psychologically, that makes sense. Financially, that makes sense. Like, there's so many, you know, aspects. It's it's your home. (laughs) It's where you're from. So it makes sense as to why you would 
return, but it's amazing that how kind of language carries or doesn't carry through depending on where you are. Mm-hmm. That they didn't speak Ladino. Once they returned, they spoke Greek. And then, like you said, once they moved to the U.S. and felt safe, they spoke Ladino again yeah. and brought home with them in a way. Yeah. And kind of I came to Ladino separately. I mean, my father didn't teach it to me or my sisters, kind of understandably. Yeah. You know, there was nobody to, really to speak to. Um, and so I kind of approached it, you know, with just a little bits of information here and there. Um, and, you know, my dad has taught me a lot, but I didn't sit down with him and like, have lessons with him. Did your dad ever tell you Joha stories? And oh, for what, maybe we can also just ex- explain a, what, who Joha is and yeah, what that is. Yeah. So, so Joha or Hoja, um, also called Nasreddin Hoja, Ooh, is, is kind of like a pan-Mediterranean, pan-Middle Eastern folk figure. So he, he's like in, in Persian folktales and Turkish folktales and in Arabic folktales. So he's kind of this universal um, or this regional trickster. Regionally universal. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, every culture kind of has that, you yeah. know, trickster, so, fool. The village idiot, yeah. right, is the... Um, yeah, and my dad had this book in Greek of Hoja stories, and, you know, it was kind of a bedtime story. He would read it in English translation. Um, Did he ever read us. them to you in Ladino? Did you hear them? No, this is, oh, this is also a new thing. This is the first time I've ever heard him say them in Ladino. That's amazing. So I always heard it, like, in translation. How was that for you? What was that like, hearing your dad's say those stories in Ladino. It was great. I mean, I'm so glad we, now we have it on record, you know. Yeah. So in perpetuity. Amazing. Yeah, well, we hope you enjoyed the interview and this little post-interview debrief and conversation. Yeah. If you want to email us, if you want to contact us, our email is elpontepodcast at gmail.com. Our Instagram is podcast. And next week, we have a great interview with Professor Brian Kirshen. Um, And, you know, we're very excited to talk with him and, you know, offer a perspective about teaching and learning Ladino today. Vivan los viejos para bien de los mancevos. The elders live for the good of the young. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope to see you soon. Mm -hmm.